Hello and welcome back again to Red Star Radio. This is a special episode coming to you today as it's the first guest of this particular incarnation of the show and we've brought in a specialist to deal with the problem of family relationships and why everybody in a completely sex-drenched culture is so utterly miserable and disillusioned with all of the above. So, uh, Layla, do you want to introduce and bring in our guest? Yeah, so we're speaking to Default Friend. Um, she's a blogger. She's just started a podcast called After the Orgy, which was really, really good, the first episode. Um, and she's also a prolific tweeter, which I think is a legitimate um, activity. Um, and so welcome to the show, Default Friend. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. Um, how's, it, how's it going in California? Are the lockdowns still really bad or are they loosening up yet? I know that the recall efforts against Newsom has, uh, it seems like it's having some effects. Um, I, I think so. I think San Francisco is a little bit more open than where I am. I'm in Santa Clara County and our lockdown has always been a little bit more stringent, but it's also like mostly like families down here who mm-hmm. are probably mm-hmm. like super cautious because like grandparents are living with them or whatever. So slightly different mood down here. Oh, like a more tense move, maybe mood, maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, people aren't really out down here, but when I go into San Francisco, which is about 60 miles north, um, it's pretty mm-hmm. lively. I, th- I feel like people just like don't care anymore. <laughs> They're like, we can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for Canada. Canada is always like a bit behind the United States and the UK. So I'm waiting for Canada to catch up to that mood. Um, we're always like a few months, three months or so behind everyone else. Yeah, everybody's just <laughs> given up here completely. Uh, even the police have even given up enforcing it, which can only be good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw pictures out of the UK of people just gathering in the parks, and like the headline being like, "For for Britons, the the pandemic is over." <laughs> yes, yes, we can't. We can, our media can't go a week without a very crass World War Two analogy, um, <laughs> which is always made because uh, the last last time we actually won anything. So uh, they go with that, and then usually a picture of like five bald guys in a park getting completely annihilated on cheap beer as a sign of sort of national harmony. While we're still locked down, we thought um, relationships have definitely come um, under a lot of fire. Um, It's been tough for people being locked, um, either locked away with your your partner or um, locked away from your partner, or if you're a single if you were single before the pandemic started, um, it must have been, I mean, you know, imagine it, it It was tough to try to find someone during these year-long lockdowns. Um, so according to what I've seen, like we, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying, oh, there's going to be like a baby boom and people are going to have a lot of kids because they're, they've been locked up with their partners or they've been forced into um, more closeness with whoever they were seeing. And so it's going to accelerate things. Uh, but instead, we've seen like a baby bust as um, the headlines have been showing. So maybe you can start on that. Like, so um, I think it's a good way to kind of look at it. Like, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that um, the enforced domesticity domesticity has not resulted in the baby boom that a lot of people were kind of hoping for? I mean, you would need like economically stable couples for there to be a baby boom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing is like, just because people are locked up together doesn't mean that they've stopped using birth control, be it like condoms or the pill, uh, or that Planned Parenthood is shut down uh, for those who uh, play Russian roulette. 
Oh, that was shut down too, right? In the United States. Oh, no, okay. no. United- I mean, I, I, oh, okay. I don't think mm-hmm. so. I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is like, you know, say that you are using this time locked down to have like a bunch of unprotected sex, be it, you know, like with your, with your partner or otherwise, like, you know, if you don't, if you're not equipped for a child, right, you're not equipped for a child and there's mm-hmm. no reason why COVID's going to stop you from, you know, getting the abortion you would have gotten anyway. <laughs> I think the idea behind it, and I guess we can, like, the, the whole idea behind it was that um, it was going to, like, reinforce and amplify any kind of, um, I think that the idea was that the lockdowns and prior to the lockdowns, people are a bit more free to, you know, kind of date around and, like, whatever and like they didn't have any reason to settle down and the lockdown would be provide a reason to do so um and so i guess it kind of didn't um so i guess like my question is like you i the the one post that i got really got a lot my attention in your column and i think has gotten a lot of attention on attention online and stuff is like your idea that we're going to kind of return to more of a traditional mode of relationships um, and I guess I didn't really, it didn't really happen during the lockdowns as much, but maybe do you want to t- talk about your theory in general? Like you see a return to what you call sex negativity. Do you want to explain like what you mean by that? And like, I guess the lockdowns might've been like a driving factor, but I guess weren't anyways, maybe in the context of the pandemic, speak about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like with the lockdowns, I think it's this weird thing where like people want to it's I think like the lockdowns have like underscored to people that they want families that they don't hate the family that they already have but at the same time it's still not enough to change the behaviors and I think the big behavioral changes are going to come within like the next five years um Mm. I I think you're seeing it right like it's starting to like really like bubble up and become a more um you know a more coherent like countercultural movement um, I, I'm one of these people who like really does believe like the, you know, these so-called like fringe groups that you see online, um, mm-hmm. do, do have like meat space impact. Like, I don't think it's just nothing. It's just people LARPing. Like, you know, if you're spending this much time on it, uh, LARP eventually becomes real life, so on and so forth. Um, so my theory is that Gen Z, um, and Gen Alpha possibly, is going mm-hmm. to become maxed out on, uh, you know, sex everywhere, sex all the time, um, sex as like something that isn't sacred, uh, sex as a bodily function. Um, and is this sort of like EV magazine, which uh, for people who may not be familiar with it, is like a very sort of like 50s nostalgic uh, anti-feminist um, publication, uh, that kind of style of uh, that you know that that kind of outlook is going to become what's dominant. So you think that um, basically people are going to be trying to return to more of like a yeah like a getting married early like at an early stage, um, and just trying to settle down with that one person for their entire life basically like that's that's what you see happening with Gen Z and Alpha. Yeah, I, I also think part of you know part of it is going to be it's the only real way to rebel. Um, it's and you see it a lot with other things too like. Right now, um, this very sort of like, you know, of course, like distilled and kind of saccharine version of tolerance is like what the institutions are are pushing. So mm-hmm. it's countercultural and actually like kind of cool to 
be ironically racist, right? Like this is something that's been beat to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost like too obvious to say, right? You, mm-hmm. you make sex too sterile, too institutional. Um, you know, it, it's, we're in a very weird time where it's like, uh, institutions that would have, uh, you know, fired someone for having a background as like a stripper or a cam girl are now including these same people in commercials, um, employee guidebooks, you know, explicitly saying it's okay if you if you're also a sex worker. I mean, all sorts of weird things are going on. So what is the youth who needs to identify against the institution, against adults, you know, against what's kind of square? What what are they left to do? They it's be a little bit more prude or a lot more prude. Um and push back against it. There's just way too much of like, and it's not, it's not even that it's everywhere and it's like young people doing it. It's also like older people are, are, are promoting it in a way. Um, mm. Like corporations are, are promoting it. Uh, Counterculture is never going to go away. Um, mm. And it's, it, it used to be that, uh, you know, more out there sexualities belonged to underground movements, belonged to people who couldn't get traditional jobs, uh, belonged to communities that were at the margins. And now Mm -hmm. it's just, and we live in, I don't know, we live in like a bizarro world with sex. Hmm. Yeah, I think I agree with you for, but for different reasons. Like, um, I think that your cultural explanation makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think that, yeah, like every new generation needs to find something to rebel against. Like, I think that is part of being young and being part of the youth and stuff. Um, but I think um, the way I see it is that, um, yeah, we're going to be seeing what well, we have seen a uh, really drastic decline in birth rates over the last few decades, like especially since the 70s. Things in every, nearly every country in the world, and especially advanced capitalist nations, um, the birth rate has been like on a sharp decline in a lot of really advanced kind of nations like Japan, Korea, for instance, the birth rate is heading towards below one. Um so that's pretty drastic. Um, to tie back to your point earlier about how people, you know, didn't like there wasn't the sudden surge in family formation during the lockdown because the underlying economic insecurities were not resolved. Um, I mean, my view is that these insecurities cannot be resolved under capitalism. And so the only thing that can be done in order to address birth rates, which I do think is a big concern for capitalists, um, they're either too high for them or they're either too low for them is to try to promote this new um try to do things in a way that's um not supportive but coercive like i think that some countries will try the social democratic approaches like sweden for instance and still fail to get back to replacement level um because they can't address the core contradictions here in terms of um reproduction and work that exists under capitalist society so i think that i really liked your post because i think it's correct in that um I think that is the, the the play that capitalists will engage in. Like they're going to try to promote like this. The, we're going to see a cultural shift towards traditionalism as an effort to promote uh, higher birth rates. Um, right now, they're trying to address it just through higher immigration. But um, as the United States declines, um, that's going to immigration like immigrants are going to be less and less inclined to come to the United States. Um, and also like 
as birth rates decline in the um, countries providing the immigrants, like that's going to become less and less of a viable option. And so they will have to figure out a way of promoting birth rates. Um, and I think that, yeah, I definitely think I can definitely see this return to traditionalism happening from like a top down. I mean, it might seem like a organic movement, but I think it will be like largely driven by a top down approach. I, I think what's also, <clears throat> I mean, and it's, I don't have like real like proof for this, or it's just sort of my intuition. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people also will be having kids against their better like financial interests. And, you know, mm. I find, I find that there's this exaggeration of like how much like millennials overspend. Um, and there's like a lot of misunderstanding and like reductive language around that, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> there is a kernel of truth. And mm. I, I think that the, you know, it's going to shift and people are going to use that, like use that money on kids sort of as a statement. And I also think like we're now like trapped in this, like never, unless these uh, broader economic concerns are addressed, we're going to be like trapped in this like never ending feedback loop of like people Mm -hmm. have, um, you know, more children than they can afford. And then you start Mm -hmm. seeing like in 20 years, like warning, you know, warnings, like, look, I did this. I thought it was going to be like spiritually nourishing or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, I, you know, I lost my opportunity to do this or like, I'm in this Mm. amount of debt. Mm. Um, And I mean, again, like, I don't have any like proof, but it just, it feels like I'm watching some of the people online who are like really rushing into marriage and rushing into child rearing. Um, And these people are still sort of at the fringes. And I'm like trying to extrapolate, like, what would this look like if it's a little bit bigger? And it's people who, you know, I saw a post that like kind of like disturbed me in in a sense only because I know the costs of having a child and I I know um, what this lifestyle looks like in practice, but uh, a working class couple, um, you know, the, the wife is, is, you know, like shit posting on Twitter and she posts something about how like once she has a kid, like she's going to be a stay at home mom, very excited. Um, (laughs) And the, the husband, she, she often writes about her husband and he is, he's a working class guy. I'm thinking like, Oh, like, Oh my God. Like, it, 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 she's it, she you know she's part of this sort of uh this sort of like online subculture and I you know I'm not passing judgment on her and I don't think this choice is like morally wrong or anything but like I you know I've, I've been there and it's not it uh you know it's not a it's not going to be comfortable and like I was I was there without a child and mm. it's it just <laughs> you know it, it 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 like you realize very quickly like shit I need a job mm. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't understand this whole thing about um the, the like I see right-wing people post about this all the time about how women would be happier if they were at home and I come from a really conservative background as well. Um religious background. Um and that was the dominant idea as well like when I was growing up about like, you know, why would you have a career over a family and things like that. Um but even when you look at surveys from working class women, um it depends like who you get the survey from like some right-wing groups will have a lower proportion of women saying this and some of them and the more like centrist or liberal groups will have a high proportion of them but it's still a good proportion at least half of working class women say like even if they had the choice they would um, still want to work um, and I think and you know speaking to your you know your your saying about how you would want to have a job I mean I guess like it was because of financial concerns or did you just want to be involved in work for other reasons so there's there's a few things. Um, so I'm, I had like a sort of interesting situation. Uh, 
my, my ex-husband was an immigrant and like at, you know, he sort of had to like restart his life and start from the bottom. And then eventually he got like a nice, you know, job as software engineer and, and things kind of, you know, changed and balanced out. But at the beginning, um, I was, I was unemployed, um, mm-hmm. and I was unemployed for a variety of reasons. Partially it was because I was coming from an arts background and I had to like readjust and, you know, change my skill set and, uh, you know, upskill a little bit to get a traditional office job. Um, but part of it was like, we were just testing out like, well, maybe this is how we should be doing things. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, he was, and he was sort of at the beginning stages of getting his career set up. And, um, one, I was, I was pretty bored. Um, but a big part of me being bored is like, I didn't have, um, a community or like a group of friends who was available and not working or anything to sort of take care of or contribute to outside mm. of work. And then the second layer of it was like, we like we very quickly realized like, we just like straight up can't afford for it to not be a two income household. Like rents are high, taxes are high. <laughs> you know, mm. if we want to call, if we want these very basic things. If we want to get all of our groceries in one hit, like we're both <laughs> gonna have to, to work. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, I think the the affordability issue is definitely a big push. Um, but at the, at the same time, women who are most able to stay home, like women who are petty bourgeois or professionals and things like things like that, they have the highest proportion. That's um, the highest proportion of them out of all of the income groups um, are working. So, if you are a well off woman who's you know would would theoretically be able to not work, you're actually more likely to work. And I think. The reason really speaks to what you were saying that, um, you know, I think human beings, including women who are also human beings, like they want to be involved in um, the social world. Like they want to uh, be contributing in some way and and everything that comes with that, like making friends, like making connections, um, feeling as though you're part of a broader community. Like these are very important things to to human beings and like they're they're essential. And the problem is that um, when it back in the day, like you could still get that and stay home because home was the site of where work used to happen. Um, a lot of the stuff that the house, like the community used was at home, like made at home. And so there was a lot of like the, the, the kind of the hub for social life for women was centered around productive activity, which was centered around the home. So now that production has moved out of the, out of the home into the factory, um, women are left at home if you are staying home, like if you can afford it and you're left with nothing really productive to do because all of production has been moved outside of the house. And so you find yourself quite, I mean, I've never like stayed, I've always worked, but, um, except for some kind of, I mean, I, I guess I've been a grad student for a long time. So, which is kind of like not having a real job. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you feel really isolated and detached from everyone. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because you are, you've been kind of excluded from, the site of um, social production and you've been kind of isolated at home. So it is, it is kind of portrayed as this like um, privilege. And I think it is definitely if you are able to stay home and you want to like, and you don't have to worry about balancing like your job and your kids and stuff, which is a lot of work. Um, it is kind of a privilege, but it is also, it's also like, I don't think it's very natural. Um, I think that the natural state for men and women is to be involved in productive activity. Like it's, there's never been a economic mode in which the majority of women have not been involved in work. Um, their work has always been essential to the running of the economy. And so I think it's something that's very, 
I mean, it's just because like recreating our world, recreating our community and recreating our society happens through productive work. And so to be excluded from that is quite, can be quite uh, detrimental. Alex, did you want to jump in? I feel like you've been a, do you want a a man's perspective, uh, offer a man's perspective into this? As the duly designated representative of all men, um, I I will make, I will make a comment, but um, just on the the resurgence in popularity in what's known online as like trad, trad lifestyle, etc. It's not really a surprise because you've been discussing the um, the uh, fact that women want to uh, go out and work, obviously. But the, one of the reasons why there's a kickback against that, even from some women, I think, is because the the promise that um, women entering the workforce brought with it, which was the idea that this was going to be a, um, an economically liberatory act, and for, to a certain extent it was, but then the the blade swings back in the other direction, which is that the the liberation was as a, as all things are under capitalism, but far from complete for women or for men, considering it coincided largely with a period of wage stagnation for everybody therefore meaning that were previously the the whole sole male breadwinner household model um, was something which wasn't going to be sustained and therefore women entering the workforce coincided with this period of stagnation so after we've now gone through well probably we're into two generations of uh, women being more fully participating in the workforce and the this promise of liberation that was held out hasn't materialized in the way that it was sold and so it's not a surprise that there are groups of people suddenly reacting against that or looking to go back to something which appeared to be more secure which appeared to give more satisfaction and also there is a growing sense of um revulsion with the way that um capitalism now basically and big business wraps a rainbow flag or a pink flag around absolutely everything and woke washes it to death uh and also the way that sex and sexuality are used in quite often very crude fashions to sell uh, to, to to sell things via the advertising industry to uh, the fact that everything has become utterly commodified it all becomes increasingly cheapened so with all that it's not a surprise that people are turning back to what are considered to be traditional forms of family when what's been given to them over the last 50 years both hasn't lived up to the expectations and in some cases actually led to people becoming more alienated from each other and also in as i said a culture that's been drenched in apparent sexuality but a very crude and commercialized form of it so the reaction isn't surprising yeah i mean what about default friend like what what do you think about the the effects of commodification like something that you write about is um you write about like the dangers of uh the glorification of sex work a lot um do you think that plays a lot into the i mean i think you clearly do do you want to explain how you think that plays into the the reaction that we're seeing that you think we're going to be seeing quite soon yeah i i mean so there's a there's a lot of ways i think it's it impacts that i i think that one we're 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 kind of glorifying um a lot of these uh avenues of work or lifestyles I'm, i'm not quite sure how to label them but um without ever like really resolving um some of our like sexual neuroses uh so it's like kind of like when uh you know like you go from like high school to college and like you went from maybe like 
being like a virgin to like everyone's like hooking up or something. And like, you never really like worked out those feelings. You're kind of just jumping from like one realm to another. Um, and then like on a, like another level, um, you know, besides like just sort of like being thrown into like not ever like really in a real way examining our, our sexual feelings beyond these sort of like high level, uh, you know, like decolonize what you think about sex. You know, it's like, there's never really a, a, a real discussion about it, but two, um, you know, you know, when we, when we do hear about sex work, for example, um, and we, that, you know, that can mean anything from only fans to sugar babying, uh, to stripping, um, uh, to more, uh, to full, full service, uh, escorting, um, in a, like a, you know, the people who are able to charge 500 to a thousand dollars an hour and, and beyond to, uh, even, um, you know, street walking with all of these things, we're only shown the positives you're attacked, particularly online. You're completely attacked if you bring up any of the negatives and I'm not, I'm not anti-sex work. And I think this is a, a place where I actually like really confuse people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it, we're not getting rid of it. Um, it, it serves a purpose. Um, you know, I, I don't have to get into the nitty gritty there, but like, <laughs> we're never, we're never getting rid of it. But like, what is a problem I think is it being treated like any other job. And there are like very practical concerns even, um, that are like never really addressed. And if you address them, you're, you're immediately labeled as uh, sex negative or a swerf. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I wrote an essay about it once where basically I, I took um, the example of Ayla, who is a very popular um, cam girl. Uh, I, I believe she's done other forms of sex work. I'm not sure exactly, but right now she's uh, quite well known for her OnlyFans. Um, and I, I, get, I said, like, look, she is an anomaly. There's probably, you know, 50 people like this in the country who um, she has like the emotional equipment to deal with it. She has the financial equipment. She has the social network. Um, she, you know, someone like her should, should be a, a sex worker if, if, if it's really what she wants to do. Um, mm-hmm. but for everyone else, there are so many layers that just aren't discussed. Um, like mm-hmm. how many people are actually psychologically prepared to have their, their value determined by their appearance? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's like, that's so hard. It's, it, it's not just like you take a picture of your tits. Everyone thinks you're hot and suddenly you're making enough money to pay your rent. Mm-hmm. People are going to be like, oh, there's a, there's a pimple forming or, you know, like just things you never even thought of. And I think it's like, even as, as practical and basic as that. Um, and then this to say nothing about like the larger, like emotional consequences of changing your relationship with sex. Well, do you think that like, I mean, we've seen like a surge of, of sex commo- commodities in the recent few decades. Like, I I mean, like it's been quite astounding. Um, do you think that they like, do you think that these like, um, obviously, I mean, sex work has always, as you say, is pretty much always existed since the start of class society. We've always had um, since the start of class. I mean, it, people say it's the it's the oldest profession. Like, I mean, it's not the oldest profession. It's the oldest profession is slave owning. Um, and the first kinds of slaves that were traded and used were sex slaves. Um, so in the, it is one of kind of the oldest elements of class society for sure. Um, but do you think that, um, like, do you think there's, there's this effort of kind of, um, 
by society or to kind of replace maybe more organic, like non-commodified relationships with sex work? And like, do you think, do you think that's been successful? Like there's a lot of um, talk around, you know, like I, I maybe on the margins, maybe not like about how people will not need women anymore or whatever, because now they have like a sex toys or they can just buy a prostitute. Like, what do you think about that kind of viewpoint? I I do think that we like, I, I might regret saying this out loud, but like, <laughs> it's, it's interesting that like me too kind of like dovetailed with the rise of like sex work as something that's almost mundane, right? Like mm. you wouldn't bat an eyelash if you found out your Starbucks barista also had an OnlyFans. Um, mm. And I think it like speaks to like, there needs to be like very strict rules about everything. And like, we're in this very weird time where like everything's sort of seen as property. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of like people's grievances um, like boil down to like, if, if you replace like, um, you know, like emotions or like one's body or like one's culture with uh, like a physical good, like my watch, my car, like, and then you look at like people's grievances, it like kind of makes more sense. I don't know if I'm totally making sense explaining this, but I, I, I do think there is this like weird thing where it's like, we're not, we're not like, we don't know anymore how to handle these more like nuanced relationships and you see it mm. beyond just sex and it's easier for people to see themselves and their bodies as a, a form of property so sex mm. work then as like a replacement then makes sense well i i was reminded of the um there was a, a very famous blog in Britain, um, must have come out about 18 years ago or so, uh, called Belle de Jour, which was the obviously it's named after the um, Catherine Deneuve film from the 60s. Um, but it was a sex worker in, in a London who kept this online anonymous diary. And then she was then outed by one of the tabloids. But then she wrote this whole book about it. It became like a hit TV show on uh, the major commercial network here. And that was very much the sort of upper end of uh, prostitution, uh, portrayed very glamorously and portrayed as a very empowering story. And that was really the sort of the first um, tranche of that over here. Then the the general attitude in the media became much more, well, uh, uh, at the same time, it was much more... Um, apparently tolerant but also very sort of uh, enabled much more of course salacious stories in the press and that was kind of the first wave of this um, extra commodification coming in and there's the legitimization to a certain degree of certain kinds of sex work in the popular media and that led really to the situation where right here as well we got the same sort of explosion in pro sex work narratives particularly on the on the left probably after about 2015-16 and it's no coincidence that um as as you were saying people can't handle what certain people can't handle uh complexity and nuance anymore particularly i think maybe like the last two generations that have been born since the since the 80s uh, have been raised in a certain way way that that appears to be more difficult to handle so they're a straight up um user end agreement and contract between you know um service provider and service user seems more appealing than having to deal with the difficulties of navigating the nuance of emotional connection and so i think that the 
there are, to a certain degree, the whole sex work narrative has been promoted very much amongst uh, the younger generations, our generations, because of the the fact that people have become so alienated from each other, and so the sex work narrative then pro-sex work narrative then emphasizes oh look you can get rid of all the the messy stuff just by paying a fee up front for a certain period of time so it's it, to me that's disturbing and obviously speaks to how profoundly alienating alienated we are but it's not a surprise that that's happened and it's interesting i started like reading um like women's magazines and women's websites from like you know like throughout the obama administration really and you notice this real shift where like women are starting to be encouraged to view themselves as like hot messes and like all of their romantic interactions as like very abject. And this is like proto me too. Um, and there's this sense that you start, I mean, you like it, 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 you could almost like chart it, right? Like the, like a line going up sort of where uh, there's this sense of, I may as well just charge for it. This is so abject. I may as well just charge for it. And then eventually in like 2014, it goes from this attitude of like, I may as well just charge to, um, I, you know, more and more stories of assault. And I don't want to suggest that people are making it up or let that Me Too didn't serve a, a useful purpose um, or that like, pe- you know, people weren't legitimately being raped and didn't, you know, didn't have like a, a valid story to tell and there weren't uh, real changes that need to be made. But it is kind of interesting um, the the way these changes started popping up um and I, you know i think you're totally right it 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 says a lot about how alienated people are because this is also happening like outside of like any community or like uh social networks as we like might think of or might see on the media uh it's it's really it's really kind of upsetting yeah i guess it's kind of i i always like i do i do think that in contrast to what exists currently, so you've got like the highly commodified, um, like sex work stuff that or like highly commodified, like sex commodities that you can partake in, or you have like this, they this dating culture which seems quite chaotic, um, and difficult, and I think in contrast to those two things, like I I do kind of feel like a, you know, perhaps a traditional marriage does seem a little bit better but I mean it definitely seems superior to those two options um but you're you say you're more of a centrist so what do you mean by that so I I definitely see and I don't know if people actually like believe this or if they're just they're just saying it as kind of a way to protect themselves and like identify against what the mainstream is um, you know, I, I, I don't believe that like everybody needs to get married, that you need to get married at 21, like been mm-hmm. there, done that myself. You know, it's like, it, it's not for everyone that you should only date, you know, one or two or three people that casual sex is all bad, that like mm-hmm. dating apps are even all bad. I just think there's just like this real, um, <clears throat> like, uh, allergy, I guess, to, to any boundary at all. Um, and when there is no boundary, then it does in the only way it seems to create boundaries is to view things through this, like, uh, you know, customer, uh, provider relationship, which is not, I mean, that's, that's far too extreme, but I also think the like stay virgins till, you know, till you're married, uh, all casual sex is bad, et cetera, et cetera, is 
is overkill too. I mean, the sex work thing is so wild to me that people are like, well, I don't really get default friend because she's somewhere between, you know, <clears throat> uh, like Ayla and Alex Casciuto. Like she seems to be okay with sex work, but she, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no shit. Like it's like, why, why is not everyone should have an OnlyFans a controversial <laughs> opinion? <laughs> Some people want it, sure. I mean, just let's, you know, let's just rein it in a little bit. <laughs> Well, we do have um, we do have a culture which is de- deliberately addicted to transgression, and that's probably been true for quite a long time now. Certainly, um, it seemed to be true when I first went to uh, into university education in two thousand and two. Um, that you could see that there were like groups of people floating around then, particularly on the more, should we say, stereotypically artistic side of things, who were. Um, addicted or really into like a so-called breaking boundaries and then that became much a much more mainstreamed thing as time went on and like um as i was even even in the workplace you get like groups certainly the groups of men that i was uh, friends with all became really into the idea that they needed to hook up with a woman who was going to break boundaries with them even though i'm sure most of them didn't actually know what any of that meant um and I think that's again that's that's something which has been deliberately encouraged because um, as soon as something becomes a marketable commodity, there's a push for more and more and more of it. And I personally don't think it led to very healthy things. With um, certainly from the even from the male perspective, even though men are perceived to gain more out of this, certainly I think it led to a lot of men um, kidding ourselves that this was going to lead to some sort of more satisfying life when in, in reality it just doesn't it can be probably a rather empty experience um, but the the fact that this has become such a such a huge part of modern culture um, again goes back to the idea that um, with ever with ev- when everything becomes commodified and cheapened certainly, the next couple of generations to come after us are probably going to turn away from it in disgust because it became this something that was supposed to start off as liberatory just so it became something very very crude very commercial and again very very alienating i'm against commodification of sex of any form form like i mean uh, you both know my views on sex work and that i don't think it's work (laughs) and i don't think it's sex um but um the same time like i do obviously like um I do think it's um it's quite something to find your soulmate, you know, and I do believe in that. Like I do think that there is someone who can who really compliments you in every way, like and who can really like who's your, your other your your other half. Like I I do think that the kind of that concept exists and I think that people I think though it's very difficult to find um in today's world because the ability to make connections with other people is very limited like we live in a more and more um an alienated society um and i think part of finding love and part of finding someone that compliments you in that way is um knowing some like creating bonds in a way in which um you change that person and they change you and there's this dialectical back and forth um and that I think happens through class struggle or through working together um, on meaningful projects and stuff like that. Um, and that just doesn't happen a lot nowadays. Like we live in like a, a world of like meaningless work and um, 
very low levels of class struggle. And so there's not a lot of opportunities to, you know, explore these connections, make these connections. Um, yeah. So I think like, um, for me, this, the centrist point of view, I think it is like more of an ideal. I think it's, um, I think it's really, really hard to find and like, like striking a balance in a world, which is about, which only goes in between these two extremes. Like, you know, I, I, if you start just from like, um, the position of production, the ways in which we experience these like crazy bubbles financially, and then that go up over the course of around 10 years and then crash over the course of 10 years. I think that really mirrors the extremes that our culture goes through as well, like this up and down, up and down. And it's hard to grasp, um, what it would, what it would be like if it, we could have a more stable existence. Like it, you know, in a context of human freedom as well, like where both parties were able to leave and come and whatever, like according to their their true own will. Um, yeah, that's what I I struggle with a lot. I think it's a really, really difficult question. I think it's good that you're, you try to explore it in your own way, default friend. Um, try to understand like what that would look like. Um, but it's tough. I think it's very hard. It, it is really hard. And, I, and people have asked me like, what I think are very, you know, very good questions. Like, you know, if if you're if you take the centrist position, uh, mm-hmm. like you know how you know how do you, how do I draw the line? Like, what is the difference between having five sexual partners and having fifty? And uh, mm-hmm. you know that there's the difference between one and zero is very obvious, but the difference between uh, five and ten, uh, ten and twenty, twenty and fifty is a little bit murkier. And it seems any boundaries you would draw from the center seem arbitrary. And perhaps the center is how you inevitably get to where we are now, which I think is actually a really good point. Um, And I'm still sort of working out like where I sit, you know, where I stand on that. Um, It just seems that people don't really do well when the rules Mm. are, are too, are too strict. It seems, it seems like that's a, that's a recipe um, that's a recipe for disaster. And I also feel like a lot of the moralizing around sex, um, Mm. overlooks, um, you know, overlooks a lot of things like, um, one, you know, you were mentioning before about like work in the home, maybe Mm -hmm. this is a tangent, it's a little bit off topic, but you know, one thing I've been seeing a lot also is people bring up, um, Mormons because Mormons do have big families and they do have stay at home wives who, you know, like at a higher rate, than uh you know non-members and it like what i like when i never see in that conversation is like yeah mormon women aren't you know may not be in traditional jobs all the time or like you know upper middle class mormon women may not be in like the traditional workforce but like they also have like some of the highest rates of like multi-level marketing participation mm, which speaks yeah. to, to your i mean there's just like little things like that that i feel like get left out of the of the picture <clears throat> and it, mm. you know like questions like that are that are just totally left unexplored mm. yeah and I, I what I really like about your work too is that you're not only discussing like love and romantic relationships like you you question you know why don't we talk more about you know one's relationships with one's extended family and friendships and things like that and I I think um um a, a one of the problems with the the relationship paradigm in today's world is that we we have too many expectations in a way out of um, what we expect a marriage or a relationship, even having kids will bring us. 
like it's not like if you have you're married and you have like two plus kids or whatever the ideal the right wing is trying to push right now then you're happy it's not true at all like there's a lot more to uh, life than just your little kind of atomized family unit um, should you be able to make one um and i think um you know I, I think there's so much obsession in today's society with like and i don't think it's unwarranted not by any means like i think it is very warranted but i think that there is such um effort to think through like there's so much obsession with romance and romantic relationships because you know your partner your romantic partner is often the only person in your life that you can have a unalienated relationship with and be yourself and feel comfortable and things like that and to find someone like that is um because we lack so many we, we lack those kind of connections otherwise um you know it, it gives it, it gives it an extra sense of urgency um and you know maybe like part of the move towards centrism is the fact that we kind of decenter from romantic relationships in a way and widen the the types of connections that we can have with other people um and the depth of of friendships for instance and the depth that of um of relationships we can have with our parents and our siblings and our extended family and things like that and once we kind of web out from and and kind of extend that um you know who we're with perhaps gains a different meaning it's not like this it's not it's not as intense you know and so maybe that opens the way to having those more flexible arrange like i don't want to say polyamory or whatever but like it opens the door for a new paradigm that is more conducive to human freedom in a way that wouldn't hurt as much if that makes sense I, I also, I, I think that your point about like putting too much stress on romantic relationships is totally right. Um, and I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that, and this has actually been written about, um, that a lot of marriages fail because, um, mm -hmm. you know, one spouse sees the other as their everything. And that's actually like one of the number one ways to ruin a marriage. Um, you need to have, you know, your, you, the friend you go to for this, your mother who gives you the parenting advice, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. configuration makes sense for you. Um, but I, I, I think we would be remiss not to mention also that the, the, the sort of core of a lot of these conversations about romance, I think both online and off um, mm -hmm. are um, one, mostly men who have neither <laughs> friends nor, uh, nor romantic partners. And um I think this is a problem that's even like impacting women. So like, even when women bring it up, um, it sort of comes back to this, this like core issue. Um, and then women who, who feel disposed of. Um, but I, I think like it's always coming for it's There's a, this um, emphasis on relationships because the, the people who are really starting the conversation, even if they're not continuing it or the ones who are making it spread everywhere are people who, have nothing and are placing a lot of their resentment there. I think very justified resentment on this, like this, you know, question about women and relationships with them. And uh, you know, why is it that uh, someone would rather have, uh, you know, 15 simps paying her than like one true love or, you know, like wh wh whatever, you know, whatever it is they say. I think also there's, um, it goes also back to the idea of both um, fragmentation, alienation, and also the um, what's expected in quite a lot of uh, workplaces and careers these days, which is that the um, your 
um, in many areas of work expected to essentially give up on almost everything. So um, you're expected to um, trade in any sort of social life to for um, office presenteeism. You're expected to um, commit commit uh, many many hours beyond what what is necessary. So. The, I mean, amidst that kind of framework, um, it's very easy for relationships beyond the, the the marital one to fall away progressively over the years. I remember back in a former career when I was a trade unionist talking to a, a chief executive in a place I was representing, and him saying, "Well, we don't really have much use for people who prioritise friendships or family." Um, and it was a remarkably honest moment, and he retired several months later. Maybe that's why he was remarkably honest. But um, that kind of that kind of um, a commitment, extra commitment that's required or asked for by a lot of by a lot of employers, by a lot of workplaces, um, kind of kills off that wider social circle. And of course, there is the other factor that quite a lot of people move away from. Um, the communities that they're born into these days so and also that they're required to continually move so the the work life to use the rather terrible term the whole work life balance thing the idea of this sort of extended group of people which most people should have it most people should have access to it would certainly lead to a lot of a lot healthier perspective in terms of both marriage and thinking of relationships in a much wider sense just simply isn't available uh, because of uh, what a lot of the demands of the modern workplace actually puts on people. Yeah. And I, and I think to that point too, um, you know, we live in a paradigm increasingly where you're constantly, you're not just moving away from your community, you're moving all the time. Um, and, you know, you, you, you won't, you won't really expect when you move from place to place that your friends will come with you, your family will come with you. Like usually you can only expect your spouse or your partner to come with you in those circumstances. And you're constantly being like made to get to know new people all the time, making new connections in situations which work against those connections um, in alienated work. Um, and so, yeah, I can definitely see like the, in those circumstances, like um, the urgency to create a, a more a more solid at least one relationship that you can depend on is is much more urgent um but also like um maybe why trying to replace that with something maybe a bit more with more flexibility and perhaps more conducive to human happiness like so the ability to have perhaps more than one relationship in your entire life for instance is has been a failure um because the other extreme is yeah it's basically what we're living now like just like a like constant like uh, remaking and breaking like the it's like a modern modernity like in the form of relationships like you're always it's a creative destruction of human relationships again and again um which is not i don't think is also i don't think is is natural either um so we're kind of stuck in between these two things it seems I sort of disagree with you guys um at least about like constantly moving I mean for some people sure I've always, and this might be just like a different shade of the same problem. At least in my experience, it's been um, that people have to move to, you know, like one of five cities um, mm -hmm. and they can't, they can't stay in their college town. They can't stay in their hometown. Um, and like, there's like a surprising number of people who like don't actually want to live in New York, but it's like for any kind of job at all, they have to live in New York or Chicago or San Francisco mm -hmm. or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, in Texas, it was like very interesting. Like I would often meet 
um, people from small towns. And I'd ask them like, if they moved to Austin, um, you know, because like Austin was the hip place to live. And like, the answer is usually like, Austin's the only place I could get a job, including like a job as a barista that paid a living wage. Um, but it's not necessarily like moving. It's just like you're, you, you have, you know, like a menu of cities. And if you want to, you know, like be again, to like have that life where you you can get all your groceries in one hit, um, and pay your rent and this and that, like it has to be one of those. And, and then it's still very hard because it's too, in it's too expensive to have a family, but at least you can get the, get your survival needs met. Mm. Mm, that's a good point too. Yeah, it's true here, but the, it's a menu of one and it's London. <laughs> uh, it's literally the only place where, um, <laughs> it's, uh, as, as soon as, university ended like I think I was the only one out of my particular class who went north rather than south so basically everybody moved to London um, but because the cost of living is so great there they can get a job and make ends meet but they could literally couldn't do anything else and I think that's pretty much the same everywhere but um, London is so incredibly expensive but it's also the it was literally for a long time the only place where the job market was truly expanding in a way that a lot of people's skills would lend themselves to so it kind of made the situation in Britain a whole lot worse what do you guys think of um what do you guys think of polyamory sorry I don't, I don't know if that's like off topic but I don't, I don't think it is what do you think about the new polyamory craze polyamory is interesting I I think it's another I mean, I, I hope I don't sound uh, too one note here, but I think polyamory <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways is in itself also a reaction. If you like pay close attention to who, um, you know, who's engaging in it most. I, um, you know, I certainly know, I, I, I feel like the number of people I know is like way above Dunbar's number at this point. Uh, I mean, I've, I've met <laughs> and had relationships, uh, you know, had friendships with rather uh, people who I believe like are like truly poly and like happy with that arrangement and like it can exist but it's extremely rare but mm. for like most of the other people who are, are who are poly it's it's less about being poly and I think you can actually say the same thing for um kinksters as well it's about um being able to identify sexually um when the community you grew up in or the community around you sees you as a non-sexual being and it's it's a just it's a discrete identity with rules and like perhaps dress and parties and customs where you know your you your whole life you've been seen as uh, a nerd or a slob or whatever thing and now here you get to be sexual um, and I mm. think that's actually why a lot of people are turned off by it not um, because they see it's like degenerate um, I think if it was simply like de- you know like scare quotes degenerate. Uh, they would just be ignored or like uh, the occasional butt of a joke, but it becomes such an object of ridicule because it's nerd sexuality, basically. Mm. I knew several guys who claimed to be. Um, I'm not quite sure what the reality of it was because I think um, most uh, men, when they get in a group together, will continually lie to each other about the amount of sex they're having, how good it is, and who it's with. Um, But like those who I did know um, who've like bigged this up, uh, largely it was like when they were in their younger to middle 20s and um, they usually ended up either in a permanent relationship or married within a year or two of loudly declaring their polyamorous nature. Um, so it's it's a little bit of the whole rebellion thing. There is a um, 
I, in, in most of the people I've known who've loudly declared themselves to be into it have been very much on the the much more middle class side. Um, it's something which has personally never appealed to me in the slightest. It's a uh, it's a very it's seen here and I think rightly so as a very as a very middle class trend. Um, uh, of it's something that people of a certain income bracket engage in uh, because uh, quite frankly it seems to be also rather expensive on top of everything else mm, yeah um, I mean um, yeah I, I think polyamory is interesting I I have um, I have a really huge interest in reading about um, classless societies so the only ones that have ever existed have been hunter gatherer societies primitive societies so-called um, and one would think that in that situation, um, there would be more polyamory and certainly, um, most societies make allowances for things like polygamy, but in actual practice, it tends to be quite rare. Um, what happens in practice in primitive societies, which come close to, um, a situation of human freedom where both men and women are some, approximately equal, like socially and economically speaking, um, is that people actually will have like, um, they'll do serial monogamy. Like, so they'll have like two or three relationships over the course of their lives. Um, you know, marriages will last for a good amount of time. Sometimes we'll get divorced. Um, but they tend to be pretty like stable in their later years, especially. So I think that's really interesting. I, I, I don't know if, I think polyamory my opinion and I don't want to sound like I'm I don't I think people should do what they want like I think people do the best they can um in today's world given the circumstances and I don't begrudge anyone for trying to find love in whatever way they think they can find it but um I do think that polyamory is kind of a symptom of this sense of defeat that you know it's impossible to to find and create find someone with whom you can create a long-lasting, stable relationship. Um, and therefore, we, we, you know, you just have to hedge your bets and just have a relationship with many people. Um, so I think it's kind of a symptom of that. I don't, I don't actually think that it is natural, either for men or women, to want to have many partners um, all the time. Like, I think that is, like, I think it's emotionally very tiring, um, physically very tiring, like, and I think that people, as I was saying earlier, I don't think that your romantic relationship is the one and only thing that you need in your life to make you happy. Like, I think people need outlets for creativity. They need meaningful work. Um, of course, they need exercise and blah, blah, blah. So you, I don't know how you can have time for all those things <laughs> if you have like to keep tabs on, you know, two, three, four partners. <laughs> Do you think, I, like, my, my thing with polyamory is, like, do you think if it wasn't so subcultural, um, if there wasn't like, you know, there's there's always a party you can go to, um, it, you, you end up with like this built in network of friends. Do you think if like that, you know, wasn't attached to it, people would be as inclined to participate? Because I, I think like I, I've heard other people bring it up, but I, I think it's like very underappreciated that um, I think some people do it because they they feel defeated, um, you know, cer certainly. Um, you know, I've met both men and women who that's their approach. And also um, a lot of people who have, um, you know, like minority sexualities um, or they're 
uh, gender nonconforming, for example, they feel like this is the only way they could find connections. Uh, but I, I really think that like the fact that there's like websites and associations and Facebook groups you could join is a really big appeal. Mm. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, like um, more of a – I think that's interesting. Yeah, I can see it being a absent other m- modes of creating community. Um, the only kind of attachments that we are – allowed to form nowadays are romantic ones, um, let's say. And so it it grows from that reality that you can only form meaningful, long-lasting attachments if they are romantic ones, because the other ones co- are constantly falling away due to the pressures of modern life. And so in order to create that community, you do so on the basis of sexual, um, a sexual interaction and not, and, you know, and, and that's where that comes from. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And also it, it does speak to the fact that even, well, maybe especially in a hyper alienated time, people will gravitate towards whatever form of community they can find, because I think that is a natural human instinct. And so if even if it's expressed through um, hypersexualization culture, um, a, a community is something that people will naturally be attracted to finding. I think like same goes for um, some of the like milder, for lack of a better word, um, forms of sex work. I, I feel like I often see people um, say like, oh, you know, strippers are so nice. Cam girls are so nice. I've I've made my best girlfriends um, through through camming. Uh, and, um, mm. you know, if you're if you're lo- like if you're lonely and you're making like 725 an hour at a job that doesn't really respect you and like you know you see all these these like in a lot of cases like really beautiful women who are like supporting one another I think like that's that's another piece of it like how much of the sex work glamorization problem could be solved by like women being nicer to one another or like better kinship (laughs) networks between women you know Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I've, I've this has become almost a catchphrase of mine that like uh, we need like more wisdom transmitted between like grandmother to mother, mother to daughter, uh, sister to sister. It's, you know, instead of like internet stranger mm-hmm. to internet stranger. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. I, I think um, there's um, a lack of, I mean, it's interesting because we live in a society that's so saturated with like sex and sex commodities, but there's very little eroticism. I don't know who said this. It wasn't me. But whoever said this, thank you for coining that phrase. Phrase, And um, I think that the part of the reason is because, yeah, like people don't, they only talk, like there's a lot of kind of clinical discussions about sex and protection and, you know, like whatever, but there isn't a lot like something that you would talk to your mother or your grandmother about, which is like forming those like emotional connections. Um, and like, I think that kind of, like people don't really know what it means to, yeah, like what does it truly mean to be in love and devoted to someone? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I totally agree. Like um, the kind of maybe wisdom you would have learned from your parents and your grandparents are is kind of off limit. You can't really talk about those things anymore, but there's like a ton of discussion about like just the physical acts of sex. Yeah, I yeah, I, I I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, it, it's it seems like uh, you know, it's it's more socially acceptable to talk about like the ins and outs of like how you had anal sex with you know your one night stand than how you caught feelings for that 
one night stand. And in fact, there's like this proliferation of articles that that, it, that are like how not to catch feelings. And, you know, this has been a trend now that these like guides to not developing feelings for your sexual partners, um, like since I want to say 2013. Um, and this is another thing that I like went back and like started looking at Google search trends and going through all the big websites. And it's like, it, it is kind of striking, like, yes, like, please, you know, talk about the, the most intimate parts of your sex life. But mm-hmm. God forbid, yeah. there's a there's an emotional connection. And like, we don't we also don't want to hear about the emotional connection because it's creepy and weird. And like, you need to get that under control. Yeah, certainly that's that that's very common in, in, in um, um, obviously uh, male friendship circles and probably has been more common for longer. Um, I mean, I think also to draw on what you were saying, the um, explicitness and the um, the incredibly open nature of the discussion of sex acts themselves, um, uh, to it's often to put a di- uh, put a distance between yourself and any emotion around the 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 act of having sex itself it's like uh, particularly and again this is particularly true in like male friendship circles like you can be incredibly uh, explicit about something you did but you can never ever admit to and I actually liked the woman as well you know <laughs> it's um, the the explicitness is a ver- is there as a barrier to actually any kind of even admission to yourself that there is any emotional attachment whatsoever because you have to the, the stereotype that a lot of uh, certainly I feel like men of my own age abide by is the idea that you are the constant shark swimming forward and are completely cold to emotions completely without connections and therefore any kind of explicit uh, discussion is better than actually admitting to a feeling um what do you guys think about cheating <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that is a maybe a solution to this conundrum? I think it's so I think it's mostly wrong. Um, mm. I don't think that cheating on a partner makes you a bad person. Um, I I sympathize with people who might want to like end a relationship over. It. I mean, it, it just it just like depends, right? Like there's just not like a one size fits all um, perspective on it. Um, because it's like if someone cheats on like their their girlfriend of say a year or like two years. Um, and like everything was basically fine and they had like a sex, you know, a healthy sex life. Um, and it's, it, they cheated because they, they needed some external source of validation or something. Then like, that's kind of, you know, it's sleazy, like you, you, you know, <laughs> take care of yourself, but say, mm. you know, you're in a, a 25 year long marriage and, uh, you've grown distant and you know, you're sleeping in separate beds and every night's a fight and mm-hmm. you, um, you, you know, like you, ha- you, like you haven't had sex and like this and that, and you cheat, like, is it still wrong? Yes. Are you evil? Do you know, do, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't, I, I tend not to think so. Um, I, it's, I, I think that we're very, very hard on, on cheaters. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily like the worst thing you can do. No, it's not the it's it's not the um, the the font the fount of all, font of all evil or anything. It's like I, I tend to I tend to agree. It's um, it's dependent upon circumstance, and I think the the uh, I'm opposed to the idea of making some kind of like um, um, 
some kind of like um, lifestyle out of it, which some people do. Uh, how to cheat and get away with it. There's about a myriad of books on that on the uh, the, the the relationship shelves of the bookshop. But again, like it's. I think our society gets off a lot on like a moral exhortation and condemnation on the one hand and um, moral excuse making on the other. So I think you know, treating the issue sensibly is something which is just seems to be anathema to the mainstream culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're both correct. Like I, mm, I think it happens sometimes. Like I think, I think it's a very mm, kind of situational thing, as you're saying, and I. I don't think it's something that couples cannot get beyond if they want to. Um, but I think that is something, um, you know, it was it was actually fairly common in hunter-gatherer societies. Like there was like varying degrees of tolerance um, in terms of um, kind of adultery, I suppose. Like so, so relationships outside of the established kind of permanent relationship that they had, like whatever marriage arrangement they had. Um, so it would happen like fairly commonly, like, and, but it would never be like something that was fully accepted as like, just kind of very few societies would just fully accept it as something that would just happen. It usually, usually the way it would turn out in these societies is that um, someone would cheat the man or woman and then either the couple would break up or they would um, make amends depending on how acceptable that thing was, um, that cheating was in their society. So I think what you guys are saying are, is pretty close to what actually happened in actually existing classless societies. It's interesting. Like when people discuss cheating, it, like I don't think that it's discussed with like a lot of nuance. I, I think like mm. you might get this conversation of like, oh, my feelings are hurt. Or like if they, if they lied about this and like what else might they lie about? Um, you know, it's like these very like surface level things. But I feel like, like if you're if you're cheating like within the context of a marriage for instance i feel like the actual concern usually is i mean like yes there's this betrayal of trust and this emotional content but like you know is my spouse going to leave me and you, you know start a new family or mm. be pregnant by or you know like there's this other person and i think like this concern has been like it's it's always implicit but it's never explicit and i think like that's really the thing that is important here um especially like with marital cheating mm, yeah I, I i mean like just so many of our conversations in our society there lacks the sense of like i mean i often say that like like all of politics right now it seems to be geared towards like people who are at university like the types of stuff that goes on in activist circles like it seems to me like people assume that everyone's a university student and doesn't have a job doesn't have a family doesn't have a relationship to maintain and blah 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 and they have just all time in the world to like mess around and just accomplish nothing and I feel like that really carries over to you know relationship talk as well like um a lack of um the conversations like really are detached from the the lived realities of people like i mean even when it comes to kids like i've written about this a lot like this idea that women are not having kids and just like you know the main thing that we need to deal with right now is like convincing them to not go on a trip um and to have a kid when the fact of the matter is the vast majority of women do have children um by the time they're 45 most women will become mothers and um the you know in fact the proportion of women who are having children is higher than a decade ago so that might speak to what you're seeing default friend in terms of trends towards maybe more 
uh, a return to traditionalism in, in some senses. Um, and the main concern most women have actually is not like whether I should go to Italy instead of having a child. The main concern is, you know, how do I, um, you know, um, meet the needs of my child, like take care of my child? How do I get enough time to go to work and have, you know, a life outside of just being a mother, which I think is extremely important and very um, badly addressed in our society. And um, yeah, like in, uh, most women actually do want to have more children than they end up having. And so how do I, how do we make it possible for women to have the number of children that they would like to have? Um, so yeah, I think it is, um, unfortunately, yeah, I think it, it, it might be a, a symptom of the fact that these conversations are mainly led and had by people who, for whom that is an actual choice, like whether I want to travel all the time or have a kid. Um, whereas that's not really an option for most people, <laughs> most women. The entire political and academic structure is dominated by one particular upper middle class of people for whom, as you said, Layla, that's that's the option. Uh, the more options are available for. And therefore, every single policy or discussion or trend is dedicated to and around them um, because they're all, all these people are also incredibly narcissistic. So you end up with a popular culture and media which is just wholly divorced from the way that most women and men lead their lives. Well, I, I think also, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with both of you. And um, I always actually add a disclaimer anytime I'm doing sort of like social observation or commentary that like I'm, I'm talking about like upper middle class people generally. And the, these trends usually apply to those groups, although you will see people um, you know, at either at either end of the spectrum as well. Um, I, I think what also ends up happening like a lot, especially with these people who are in this kind of like gray area where they're not really academics and they're not really pundits, um, but they are like speaking like quite a bit about these issues is that they're talking to themselves. Um, and mm. it's not that they literally think that most women want to be these girl bosses who are uh, constantly <laughs> going on these like Instagrammable trips. It's that like they themselves for uh, whatever reason didn't get married until they were 31, 32. They had their first child at 33 and they're, they're mad at themselves because they do, they do want three or four kids and their, their body might not support it or they might not have the, the money for it. And they, they look at it and they say, well, what did I do with my twenties? And even the, the sort of anger isn't even really addressing their own real reasons, but it's just easier to kind of say, well, this is why, instead of like, you know, my, my boyfriend of seven years led me on and we never had kids or like I couldn't afford it. It just becomes easier to like be super reductive about it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to have like huge, huge families anymore. Like I think most women would be happy with like two to three um, tending towards two. And actually that is the historical norm um in peasant families for instance like they tended to have um you know fewer children um because there was um what not landless pe peasants but uh, peasants with land um you didn't want to have to divide the land amongst many children and so actually you see birth rates decline in um, middle and later periods of uh, peasant society or not peasant society but you know the peasantry um, and actually, like in hunter-gatherer societies too, they tended towards a replacement level number of children. So two kids and um, they would use like very like brutal and like, um, like what, and you know, they, they use the methods that they had available to them, which was, yes, they did have some 
contraceptive approaches that they use, but with varying success. And so actually abortion was extremely common in hunter-gatherer societies, like it existed in all of them. And um, sometimes the methods were really brutal, like, um, you know, some societies would have women jumping off high places or pr pressing hot stones against their abdomens or sticking uh, things up their cervix to provoke a infection. And so in order to provoke a abortion, um, there's one peoples that would abort all of their fetuses, the Sirari people of Taiwan, who would abort all their fetuses until the age of 34 uh, or 37, and then only start not aborting their fetuses after that in order to keep birth rates low to like two, um, because that's all the society could, that's what their societies were able to manage, that they couldn't have a very high, um, quickly increasing birth rate because, or population rather, because that would overload what a hunter-gatherer society was able to provide for because they weren't like increasing their technologies and their productive forces like we have now. But I, I think though, like, um, I think that's what human the human species would tend towards eventually, like a replacement level. So what we're seeing now is women saying that they would like between two, like between two to three, so like two point something, um, and they're having below that, like be between one to two in most advanced capitalist societies. So I know that's a bit of like a, not maybe on topic, but yeah, I just wanted to give my uh, information about birth rates <laughs> and what they were like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, but yeah, I, to your point though, like I do think that like, um, just because it's happening in middle-class societies, it doesn't mean that it's not happening to working-class women. I, I think these things have like a huge, like capitalist society, like, you know, petty bourgeois culture and stuff definitely does have effects downstream. Um, and yeah, like, I, I do think that, um, it's like what's happening in these kind of social stratums, like is important and is relevant to proletarian women for sure. Um, because it does affect like, like it affects everything. It affects like what kinds of services are available for them, like what kinds of, um, you know, arrangements will be made available for them um, and stuff like it, it does affect them. So I think it and I think it does affect the culture. Like I think that if you only have like a, a politics and a culture that's being formed by petty bourgeois and bourgeois women like um, that, that is the culture that's available and people will like live in it. So yeah, I think that is it's very relevant for sure. Well, and also the um, what you see with um, what you see with the the birth rate question and the um, the uh, the wants of um, the wants of people in terms of what kind of family they they desire to have. Um, you often find that the uh, the convers again the conversation around that as you've been saying is something which is incredibly uh, dominated by a certain sector so like you go to um, working class areas and you see that um, again the, the working class in Britain has uh, of course proportionally more children in their families than uh, the middle and upper middle class does and again that's as we've seen also with this whole coverage of the um, the COVID era in the last year, all the discussions around been around. Oh well, how's lockdown affected this uh, particular segment of the uh, middle to upper middle class? How's it affected this segment? And the working class has just been working, having children, sending children to school, pretty much as normal. And not that you would ever know that from popular media or academic coverage of any of this. It's just the working class's experience is just a completely subterranean thing into which. Uh, media and academia just don't look mm. yeah I mean um, 
what do you think about the idea, a default friend, that um, women, do you think that most women are like having fewer children that they, than they actually desire? That's like one of the big right wing points about how women are, um, they don't know what they're missing and stuff like that. Like, what do you think about that idea? I think it's true for like a certain subset of women. Mm. Um, most women I know who are mothers are, who are, you know, above the age of say like 40 or 45, like do have this sort of like wistful, well, I wish I had one more. Um, mm. But, you know, these are also women who are who have like two or three children. So it's like, you know, who, who knows? It might be just like they being a mother was so central to their identity um, mm. that now, you know, <laughs> you know, now it's like, how seriously should we take it? Um, but I, I, I do think there I think the thing is that um, a lot of these like right wing talking points, as we've been saying, like, are really anchored in certain communities. Um, so it, it's always like, it's always people speaking to each other, pretending that they're speaking to everyone. Um, mm. So it, it probably is true for them. Um, is it true for, for everyone? Who knows? Um, you know, like one thing I've, I always think about is like, when people say, um, you know, uh, we're not having enough kids, like, you know, do you, do you also think that about like, the, you know, the first gen Mexican family on your block who, you know, there might be four siblings and those four siblings have two kids each and they have a huge extended family. Like, are you know, are you thinking the same things about them? Or is it just like your, you know, your white colleague with like a master's degree who is still considering whether or not they can afford their one child and, you know, whatever. Mm. So I, I think there's, there's like, I, I guess, like, as we've all been saying, like over and over again, like, I think that that has that is that the impact that has on the rhetoric can't be understated and that doesn't mean again like as we've been saying like that their concerns aren't relevant and don't like uh set the tone but um there's a difference between like what's the tone what's the fad and then what's actually happening to everyone yeah very true Mm. yeah yeah i think um i think reproduction is talked about in a really shallow and like restricted way like on both sides like um, talk about abortion and talk about reproduction um and and childbearing i think it's so such a deprived conversation that's going on and i really truly think that having children and um you know becoming a parent and they're not like they're discussed as if these are individual decisions that primarily is um taken by the woman but in fact i think it's a very deeply social question and what's happening with the society, the society reflects directly into reproduction. Um, one, you know, for instance, like a lot of people, like uh, right wing people will will message me or on Twitter and say, well, if you think that women aren't having children because they don't have the economic means to do so, then why is it that Sweden's birth rate is so low? So Sweden's birth rate is like still below replacement. And when you look into it, I mean, Sweden does have a lot of supports um, to relative to other countries to help women um, and support them in becoming mothers. Um, And so you would think that it would uh, help women achieve like their goal, their ideal goal in terms of children. But there's a few things that work against that. And number one, um, as you're saying, like it's women will like the problem with the way in which we approach reproduction in our society is that in capitalist society is that capitalists try to enable women to work. Like that's the main goal of their policies. It's not enabling women to have children. Um, 
And so, or to have families. And so when you look at Sweden, for instance, you'll see that like the birth rate actually trails the business cycles. So every time the economy is doing a bit better, um, women will, the birth rate will increase with that. And when it's doing a bit worse, the birth rate will decrease. Um, and so um, if you're not talking about the society, when you're talking about birth rates, then you're not talking about birth rates. Like you're talking about individual decisions that people think they're making you know, kind of independently, but are actually just a reflection of what's going on in the social. Um, and same thing with abortion. Like abortion has always happened since the beginning of the human species. It's never, I don't think it's ever going to go away. Like I think if you, if you make it illegal, um, women do do it by themselves anyways, resulting in a lot of maternal death and harm to women and their fetuses or if the fetus survives. Um, and so like it's 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 such a deprived depraved conversation like it it's it's so frustrating for to be to view it from to 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 see it like play out um you know as a as a uh basically like as a, a matter of like different little choices that women make um or not are not making and things like that and like their morality or their preferences and it, it's really about so much more than that that is never really discussed at all to the point where people don't understand like why these policies don't work. Like people are just so confused, but it's because they don't, they only see it through the lens of like individual choices. I think you're totally right. I mean, abortion is such a tinderbox. Um, and like what one topic that like, I actually usually try to avoid because I feel like there is no empathy um, from any of like the major camps speaking on it because, you know, on the flip side, if when you do say like, hey, um, you know, I went through this, I regretted it. Or like you see someone who's writing like maybe like an apolitical essay or blog post and they share it out with the world. Um, you get like a lot of pushback. But I mean, is that any better than the, the other side of the argument that will say like, even if you get like a medically necessary DNC, then, you know, you, you're going to burn in hell. Like both both sides are so problematic. And then, on you know, a step further back, it doesn't say anything about like, what are the actual economic circumstances? Why are people making these choices? It's always through the lens of women should be free to like live the lives they want. Or, um, you know, women care too much about going on these Instagram trips or like whatever thing or riding the cock carousel, as they say on Twitter, not to be a little <laughs> vulgar. Um, and it's never like through the, okay, I was going to, you know, I, I was pregnant with a, a child who uh, maybe had some like serious development developmental issue or just like one of these situations, right? Totally ignored. Uh, I was on food stamps and there, you know, my husband was very ill or like, there's like, there's so many different reasons that I feel like completely end up lost in the wash. I think that's right. Yeah. The, the, the conversation around it between the established left and right is usually either exactly as you said, it's either you're all going to burn in hell for being basically sinful or um, people running around screaming that um, um, that abortion isn't just something which is necessary, but is something which is a, a, a positive social good. And if you don't think so, you're a fascist. Um, the actual reality as to why, and it is often left to women to make, make these incredibly life-changing decisions, uh, very painful decisions a lot of the time, is never explored because there's no... There's no political capital to be made out of it. There's no actual capital to be generated out of it. And it remains just this um, online and real world um, uh, debating point where 
the reality of life for the women concerned, for the families concerned, is just it just never intrudes. Yeah, and abortion is just not that common. It's really not that common. Like most women in their lives, m- most women become mothers. Um, they don't. Most women actually don't have an abortion. It's it's a it's a limited um, proportion of women, much more limited. I think it's in the United States, for instance, which has one of the higher rates. It's twenty five percent of women or something will have an abortion at some point in their life, or twenty percent, whereas eighty six percent of women will become mothers by the time they're forty five. So. Why, you know, like, I, I just think it's um, this idea that um, you can abstract the individual from the social, ex- like their social circumstance, and then ascribe um, like some kind of, like even the, this, uh, the idea that desires are formed from within and you just express them. Uh, I I think it's wrong. I think, you know, how many children you want or if you don't want children or if you want an abortion, you don't want an abortion. I think this is socially formed. Um, And I think it's socially and it's just expressed through the individual. And of course, like the individual forms the social and the social forms the individual in a dialectical way. But um, yeah, like if you have a problem with abortion um, or if you have a problem with it, whether you're for it or against it or whatever, like if you have a problem with it, the way it's addressed and like it's a social issue. And so you have a problem with society and no one ever talks about that. Like it, it, it always comes down. It's it comes down to this, frankly, I think quite anti-woman rhetoric um, around whether women should or should not be doing something when they're not. They're just expressing the the social conditions in which they're they exist. And that's it. Like if um you know, like if, if you want to change things, you have to, you can't change it by punishing or conversely, like quote unquote, deliberating or like making access to something more liberalized. Um, like that's not going to drastic, like you're going to make it safer for sure. Like, and, and I think that's important. I think women should not be hurting themselves to get an abortion because I think that they will do so anyways, as has been testified throughout the ages and also like in countries where abortion is illegal. But um, it's not really going to, it's not addressing any fundamental issues. Like this is just, I think it, it very much is an aesthetic conversation that's imbued with like deep moral weight. And I think that's displaced personally. Like it's a question about abortion. <laughs> yeah. this, this is an issue though that it, like you, you see this everywhere. Um, no one ever really wants to own up to the fact that people are products of their environments. Um, it's mm-hmm. always like, you know, it, it, you know, not to not to be the the person who's always bringing up like internet trads, although I'm quickly becoming that person. <laughs> you know, it's uh, there's this like idea that like like individual women are to blame for um, not like protecting their virginity, and like I don't necessarily agree with that. But like you know, I don't agree that that's the right thing to do necessarily. But you know, let's say like we're accepting like the narrative terms of that universe. Um, like why why would it be on an individual the individual women women instead of like the social norms there's this idea that individuals make the social norms right mm-hmm. like uh, just like you just decide what society is going to say is okay instead of like it being a very strange dance um that is determined by many factors including um you know economic ones um and i think that uh people are well meaning about it um but there's a lot of shame comes from this idea that uh, your choices are completely up to you and nothing else um, informs them. 
Yeah, we're all taught that our decisions are made in almost in a void, uh, just ourselves alone. Um, and that is something which is very much a product of the what is popularly referred to as the neoliberal period, like everybody's encouraged to you know, to see themselves as this um, great and sovereign individual with links to with the links to the rest of society and the societal influence over your decisions and the structural influence over your decisions is completely taken away. And that's not just the, I would say, the bourgeois right doing that. The left does that as well. Um, with the way that um, they've con- they've conducted themselves over the last few decades, um, it's equally hyper individualized and equally lacking in societal analysis as as the right is. It just takes the takes the opposite view. You so you've just got two sides which are both focused on really a hyper individualized form of very aesthetic uh, politics. Again, just completely disconnected from the real the real social world. Absolutely. Okay, so if I can ask one last question, and then we'll wrap it up. What do men want? Oh, Jesus, is that for me? <laughs> no, it's for both of you. <laughs> I don't know, because, um, yeah, I, wanna, I, want, I want the both perspectives, the, the female perspective and the male perspective. And then maybe, maybe you can do what women want after. Okay, well, I think our guest should go first, because I've, I've got to take some time to think about this, so I'm going to play for time. <laughs> All right. Um, I... So first of all, I think everyone, men and women, um, want to one, survive, and then be able to somehow uh, distinguish themselves uh, above survival. Um, so there's a lot of people who are disgruntled because they, they can't, they don't have any dignity at all. And it's not because like there's something wrong with them, but it's just the the environment that they're in doesn't allow that. So that's, that's you know, <laughs> that's the foundation we're on. Um, and then romantically i mean i think i think men want to be able to express their masculinity um i even think like this like male feminist thing is uh you know a form of expressing masculinity uh in in the way that's deemed socially acceptable um i think they want to feel important i don't think that i i I do think that men have an emotional um need and a need for romance as, as well as women and i think that there's this sort of an implicit idea that men only care about like sexual variety or sexual conquest when really like um, family formation and love and being loved for who they are and being listened to and being taken care of is equally as important, if not more important um, in the long term. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that, that's it. I think that there's just, there's so, there's so much uh, strife that's created from one, not being able to live in a dignified way and then two being seen only as um a sexual actor uh only fans would not again this is a cliche at this point only fans would not be as popular as it is um if that parasocial element wasn't there okay now i've had time to think about it i can i can answer um the I, I kind of I very much agree with what you were just saying there. Um, I think there is, I mean, God knows how many books have been written about the differences between men and women. Uh, certainly, a lot of money's been made doing that. Uh, I remember the the notorious one from the '90s was uh, "Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus," and a whole slew of other things. But the the reality is that men and women aren't that far apart in what they, we actually want. I mean, you, uh, you you're right, which is that the the key thing is to be able to you know live with a degree of dignity and respect for ourselves and each other, and also the 
the idea that uh, relationships are about um, you know one party trying to crush the uh, the the life and spirit out of the other is a very negative cliche that we really need to get away from. But I think like one of the things that makes a lot of guys very very unhappy has been the has been that idea of like well you got to be out there uh sowing the oats so to speak you got to be out there making as many conquests as possible possible doesn't matter if you they are you know utterly devoid of feeling or you um hated all of it or that there's just um it leaves you uh feeling nothing inside just got to do it and a lot of guys fall into the trap of uh, thinking that that's something that they should be doing and it leads to a lot of uh, bad decisions and misery. And what we, I think, mainly uh, speaking personally, out of it, I think I can extrapolate a little bit wider, which is that men also want the romantic side of it. They want, for want of a better term, they want the, the romantic and the spiritual connection that can come from being with a woman um, for, and the ability to develop a life together based on trust and intimacy that can come from that and of course that takes a degree of security to be able to operate but to be able to work properly but i think that a lot of uh, men are prepared to make it uh, a lot of sacrifices to be able to find that and that's right that we should do so so i think that this idea that this this huge division is wrong i think that these um a lot of this is just uh marketing and ephemera from what's been a very shallow probably last 50 years or so um and it's certainly a lot of affected a lot of men very badly even though uh, uh we uh men are still be still be in the driver's seat and to a large degree are when it comes to dating and relationships but yeah i think that the men are as much looking for uh, romantic attachment and real human feeling in a relationship as women are it's just that i think that for a lot of guys we just need to clear our heads of the marketing and the bullshit before we can actually realize it well said yeah i don't have any thoughts i um i'm still trying to figure it out but um some good answers here and i think it kind of covers it for women too so um so default friend thank you so much for joining us it was um Amazing. Yeah, we, we I really helped clear my head. <laughs> yeah, it was great to hear. I mean, it was you both are so smart and it was like really really nice to hear a new perspective. Yeah, sorry. I, I hope we didn't get too um into the Mark CC stuff. <laughs> but sometimes it's a good thing. <laughs> no, it is it's uh it it's it's refreshing. I I liked it a lot. Okay, great. Yeah, Perfect. I'll Thanks for coming on. And um, everybody be sure to check out the After the Orgy podcast, which you can find easily on Spotify and I suppose other popular podcast platforms. I've listened to the first episode and really insightful and also quite very witty observations in there as well. So I, I heartily recommend. Yeah, and follow Default Friend on Twitter and her great Substack, which is excellent as well. Okay. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll link in the show notes. But um, thanks to our guest default friend for coming on. And we'll be back with another couple of episodes for you next week. Uh, so until then, we hope you've enjoyed this show. And we'll see you again soon. Bye.
make me stay here I got to be me Because I promise I'll be gone for a while